0: Thank you, Smiley Al, for your regular introduction. It's episode ninety nine. It is the seventh of June, two thousand and seventeen. With me, the original, the one and only, the Velvet Glove, Scott. <laughs> How you doing, Trevor? I'm going well, Scott. Uh, episode one hundred next week. That's going to be good. It is going to be good. Yes. Mm. Yeah. It's uh,
1: it's it's certainly uh, crept up on us, hasn't it? Mm.
0: Um, you know, ninety nine episodes ago when we kicked this off, we thought. Well, will there be enough to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> and I can honestly say, dear listener, I think there's only once where I struggled to find material and on that occasion we read a little bit from the Sirah, The Life of Muhammad, and I reckon that was one of the better episodes. Um,
1: well, that's just very been, true. You know.
0: There's just been no shortage of stuff happening and, <clears throat> yes, we have expanded beyond... Just bashing religion regularly to you know other sort of changes in society, but crikey, there's been a lot going on religion-wise alone. So um, yeah, plenty there of material. has been a hell of a lot. Yes, mm. so mm. so if you're going to you know if we if if terror attacks are part of the mix of what we talk about, then unfortunately, Scott, we can see into the future that there's going to be plenty to talk about and there's that many going on now that a weekly podcast isn't enough to actually, you know, respond to these promptly. But the interesting well, thing... Go okay, on, sorry.
1: It is... It's getting bloody ridiculous, isn't it? You know, we, we've had London and then we had Melbourne and then well, we had Manchester, London, Melbourne and then today there was Paris. Mm. You know, it's it's getting out of control. I'm losing
0: count. But the interesting thing is now, I think, is... You know, the new. It isn't so much oh, there's a terrorist attack, and talking about the attack itself. It is the aftermath of the attack, and what are people saying about the attack, and how are people responding and reacting, and what are the leaders saying, and what are people commenting on about the attack. That I guess is the interesting part. So, if we, you know, if we're speaking a week after a terrorist attack, it's probably a good time because we can reflect on some of the nonsense that people are saying. Um, in response. So, so anyway, we're going to, for the first part here, dear listener, talk about the, um, the London Bridge attack. And on this one, we've got a little grab from Theresa May uh, with her, her you know, speech that she gave in relation to it. We cannot and must not pretend that things can continue as they are. While the recent attacks are not connected by common networks, they are connected in one important sense. They are bound together by the single evil ideology of Islamist extremism that preaches hatred, sows division and promotes sectarianism. What did you think of that, Scott?
1: I thought... I didn't
0: understand
1: some of the criticism of Theresa May. Um... I felt that she struck the right chord. I felt that um, she didn't single out and say this is all Islam's fault. She said it was extremist Islamism. Mm. And um, I thought she hit the nail right on the head. But, um, yeah, what did you think?
0: Well, let's look at what some of the critics have said. Yeah. So The Guardian came out and... um, Our friend Hugh Harris despaired over this response from The Guardian uh, on his Facebook page. Uh, The Guardian's view on Theresa May. um, uh, Mrs May gave her most explicit pitch today to policing thoughts rather than acts. This is a bad idea. It rests on a strategy to counter ideology rather than one that counters terrorism. So that was the... uh, (coughs)
1: And while I understood that, I understood that criticism. Um, You don't want to try and censor thoughts or anything like that. However, given what we're dealing with, I don't think there's much else you can do except try and crack down on the methods that they use to spread their hatred. Um, I understand where people are coming from. I agree with them. However... We are dealing with something very new now, so uh, I, I, I've got a foot in both camps on this one. Yeah.
0: Well, according to the Guardian, what she said rests on a strategy to counter ideology rather than one that counters terrorism. If, well, if, video, on, if only if, she if, did. If, I don't even think she did. If, if only she did. But.
1: Well, was she was talking. About, she was talking about stopping um, the social networks and that sort of stuff, and she wanted to. Try and mute them online.
0: Mm. So that was that was separate to that. So the, the yeah, it, 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 is, it is quite vague, really. You know, the the grab that I just played is just another motherhood statement. Except she's identified Islamic extremism, Islamist extremism, as as somebody in her or something that's in her sights. But other than that, she mm. didn't really say anything. She subsequently came out and said that she wanted to more power in relation to the internet and the ability to decipher what people are up to on the internet uh that was the only concrete thing that she came out with but that initial statement was just a bit airy-fairy you know we've got to counter islamist extremists and i would have thought that's patently obvious that we have to um a couple of other things from this article um Mrs May's policies exclude cooperation with the very people who might be best placed as discouragers of terrorism. Uh, Those who hold similar extremist beliefs, but who are non-violent and are opposed to the methods of violence. Mrs May's plans criminalise the eyes and ears you need to spot terror. (sighs) Essentially, it's saying that... The people who hold similar extremist beliefs, but who are non-violent, are not going to talk to the authorities anymore. As a result, really, (laughs) were they ever going to? Well,
1: yeah, that was the thing I found a little bit hard to understand. Was that you know it says it holds similar extremist beliefs. If you (laughs) hold similar extremist beliefs, yeah, exactly, non-violent, and you just think to yourself that doesn't make any sense. If someone holds beliefs and that sort of stuff, it doesn't mean that they are extremists for holding beliefs. They might hold views that are out of sync with everybody else, but that doesn't necessarily make them extremists. In my view, what makes one an extremist is someone that is prepared to strap explosives to themselves and blow themselves up. That makes someone an extremist. Mm. So I would put them... I would put those people into the other category that you would have them just holding views that are peculiar to the rest of society.
0: Somebody who's prepared to blow somebody up—that's a violent extremist. But there's, you know, there's Mm. extremist people in in the Muslim world who've got just extreme ideas. And um, look, at the end of the day, what she said wasn't much. And for the Guardian to come out and uh, and say something along the lines of mrs may should not have lumped together murderers and peaceful muslims who are simply observant rather than violent she didn't do that she didn't lump them together she specifically referred to islamist extremists and mm. and said we've got you in our sights and for that the guardian said oh you can't say that it's just the left wing is just out of control oh mm. yeah i agree mm. Other responses have been uh, got one here from the conversation, Bill Durodi. Um, yes, a couple of good lines. I thought this was quite good. This one, mm.
1: yeah, I, I I think I pointed this one out to you. A mm. uh,
0: couple of good lines. Um, he said, uh, "Too right, enough is it enough? Britain must tackle uncomfortable questions." He said, rather than being united in horror and mourning, perhaps it's time we focused on being united in purpose. I like that. Mm. Um,
1: I agreed with with him because I was expecting this whole trotting it out and saying this is all our fault for our foreign affairs and all that sort of stuff. And it got down to, you know, he said we should have a common purpose. mm. And then what I really liked, and I'm sorry to hijack this, but... um, what I really liked he came down there he said maybe it's time for maybe it's time for some to note too that the British the British society is not the racist catastrophe presumed of those who prefer to talk up Islamophobia at such times and I really took my hat off to him there because he's hit the nail right on the head he said that you know this has got nothing to do with race or anything like that and this line here <laughs> um, appears to believe that we are all just one terror incident away from launching a pogrom against the Muslim community when she announced that the last thing we need is for people taking out their frustrations on people in other communities. And, you know, he's right. It is ridiculous that um, the Mm. UK should automatically feel guilty and run and cry and that sort of stuff and say that they're racist because they're not.
0: Mm. That was good criticism of the Metropolitan Police Commissioner... Cedar yeah. Dick, who said, mm. you know the last thing we need is people taking out their frustrations on people in other communities, but that, there's no evidence that that's happened or it's going to happen no. It was a very no. poor view. I mean, the British people are so goddamn civilized they're too civilized that's, <laughs> that's the problem, and oh careful, everybody, don't go rushing out and having a pogrom against
1: against Muslims
0: as if that's on the minds of British people what a what a slur for something that's just not in the wind at all Mm. um so I, I, I like that criticism you're right and the other thing he said was uh there are now demands including from the prime minister herself that the internet and social media platforms be censored and policed too but the fact is that if you or i were to trawl through as many jihadist websites as we could find we still would not turn into the morally bankrupt murderers that are committing these atrocities good point Mm, it's a
1: very good point yeah yeah very good point so there's there's something else that flips that flips the switch in the minds of these people yes to turn them into violent
0: That's right. If you were just to shut down the... uh, Yes, it's ignoring the fact that there's other things happening beyond just um, stuff on the internet encouraging people to blow up other people.
1: Mm, Exactly.
0: Um, Another one here, Scott. I don't know if I gave you this one, but um, our friend Kenan Malik came out. Did I give you that one? Great. No, you didn't. Okay. So um, his response to it was... um, Uh, regarding Theresa May, it was a speech long on rhetoric but short on sense. It is May herself, first as Home Secretary and now as Prime Minister, who for the past seven years has been responsible for counter-terror policy and for challenging extremism. Any failures of policy are therefore attributable to her. That's interesting, Scott, isn't it? That she was Home Secretary prior to being Prime Minister in charge of this whole business of anti-terrorism,
1: and yeah, it, it certainly was in her portfolio of responsibilities. Yeah,
0: and when the election that she called, that she said she wouldn't call, but did because she thought she mm. saw an opportunity, and she was leading by twenty points in the polls, some of those yeah. polls have now got her only ahead by one point.
1: Exactly. Yeah they, they've narrowed to the, they've narrowed to the point where she could be forced into coalition or even forced onto the opposition benches
0: and there are damning statistics about how the budget for police and other groups who are required to combat terrorism the budgets have been slashed under her Mm. watch so once those come out and people understand them she's in even more trouble exactly um Uh, In regards to the greater regulation of the internet, Canon Malik says that both Masood and Abidi are now thought to have organised their attacks largely by themselves and not through a network. It is unlikely, then, that being able to decrypt their WhatsApp messages would have helped prevent the horror they unleashed. I could help you anyway with these guys. You have these lone wolf Mm. sort of guys operating, uh, checking their WhatsApp isn't going to work. Um... Censoring, um, you know, blocking sites as well is not going to work. People are just going to go underground. Um, uh, He said that there's basically three problems. The first relates to policing because both of those guys were known by security services, but they just fell off the radar. Police knew about them and, and just weren't watching them closely enough. So it wasn't a matter of intelligence. It was just... Effort and manpower and policing. Um, the second problem Kenan Malik identifies as political. Um, he says, Two years ago, the then Prime Minister David Cameron ordered an investigation into the funding of jihadi groups. The government is seemingly blocking publication of the report. This is a bit like the New South Wales SR. E, Mm. you know, report that sat on the shelf for over a year. So this was a report into the funding of jihadi groups in the UK. The government's seemingly blocking publication of the report, apparently, Scott, because it shows the involvement of Saudi Arabia in such funding. (laughs) Saudi riches have helped promote Wahhabism, the ideology that drives most jihadis throughout the globe. But for economic and geopolitical reasons... Britain does not want to upset Saudi Arabia. Good point, Ken and Malik. I mean, if you want to have an uncomfortable conversation, um, enough is enough, then you really need to start looking at Saudi funding. Saudi Arabia, mm. yeah, exactly. And the final one, he says, is a social problem. Social changes in recent decades in Western societies have opened up space for jihadis to inhabit The rise of identity politics has fragmented society and narrowed our sense of attachment and belonging. The social and moral boundaries that act as firewalls against inhuman behaviour have weakened. So we agree with that, and we've talked a lot about identity politics and its narrowing of people into minor, smaller and smaller interest groups. And if you've got a really small in-group, it means you've got a really big out-group that you're prepared to do nasty things to if you're so minded. Mm. Mm. That's Ken and Malik, Scott, the good news is that uh, the Pope, according to the Catholic news, <laughs> guess, guess what he's doing. He's prayed for London. Oh, <laughs> you know, veritable Nostradamus, Scott. <laughs> uh, uh,
1: it's the Catholic news perspectives. Um, he said, may the Holy Spirit grant peace to the whole world. Francis prayed, may he heal the wounds of war and of terrorism, which even this Saturday night in London struck innocent civilians. Let us pray for the victims and their families. Um, You know... It
0: didn't really achieve much, did it? At what point do you give up and say this prayer stuff doesn't work? Exactly, you know, because the nonsense of it, just at what point can we say it's rubbish? Anyway... He's not alone. The Archbishop of Westminster, Cardinal Vincent Nichols, had also earlier tweeted that all affected by the attack were in his prayers. If that's consoling for you. So that's what they're up to. Um, One here, now I haven't given you this one, Scott, because this came in at the last minute, but you might remember we read a book once uh, on offence by Richard King. Uh, to do with um, free speech and the ability to give offence where necessary. And Mm -hmm. he's written an article which is a bit of a review of Paul Bloom's book about empathy. And he's basically agreeing with Paul Bloom's view that, that empathy is a problem. And when we apply empathy too much then we can end up with a very narrow focus on a very small group and not actually get to the correct answers and resolutions and things so a couple of quotes from this article Um, not only are we more likely to feel empathy for those who tend to look like us a fact not always conducive to the universalism in, in which calls for more compassion often come couched but we also tend to lavish our empathy on what's called the identifiable victim. For example, there will be circumstances in which it is necessary to deny someone a job, a job in mining coal, say, in order to secure the future happiness and health of people not yet born. In such a scenario, empathy can be an obstacle, and it can lead us to make the wrong decision. And he in the article is accusing the left of applying empathy too much to victims and therefore arriving at the wrong results and uh, notes that we treat empathy as a virtue in itself. Uh, um, He thinks it's a symptom of political confusion, especially on the progressive side of the line, where a politics of conspicuous compassion uh, serves as both the remedy for the erosion of social solidarity and as a stand-in for political uh, solidarity. Blah, blah, blah. bit further down. Here's one thing that I'm sure I'll be quoting later on. Scott, we in the past have talked about trickle-down economics and mm-hmm. saying it just doesn't work. It gets quoted a lot, yeah. but it doesn't work. Uh, he's got a theory that he's putting, putting forward down here. Um, trickle-down model of social change is at work raise awareness, end the stigma, use the right words, avoid the wrong ones, congratulate organisations when they set the right tone, tell them off when they fail to do so, and above all, show you care and entreat others to care as much as you do. Um, Do all that, and slowly but surely we will arrive at a just society. Uh, In the same way, he's saying, and of course that just doesn't work. So, where we've got calls for unity calls for love calls for compassion if we all just hold hands and kumbaya, kumbaya. he's <laughs> he's saying that that is a theory of of trickle down social change where the love will just trickle down to where it's needed <laughs> and in the same way that trickle down economics doesn't work uh, trickle down love doesn't work, it doesn't either. work it's, either it's no. not getting to where it's needed i like that trickle down yeah Yes. Also, Scott, when we're looking at uh, the reactions of what's happening in the world to this sort of event, it's very instructive. And an article from The Conversation that was I saw first mentioned in the Rationalists newsletter, and Hugh Harris also mentioned it in his uh, Facebook page. And this is one from The Conversation... Um, by Lauren Roseworn. And she notes that uh, she's in her 17th year of working at the University of Melbourne. So she's 37 years old. And she's aware of an academic called a Professor Brian McNair, who works at QUT. Mm. And he's been in the press for some inflammatory comments that he made on social media, where he said... um, I think this must have been Facebook or... Um,
1: Twitter, I believe.
0: Twitter? Okay, Twitter. Enough uh,
1: is... Yeah, go on. Is, yeah. Uh, Brian McNair, he said, Enough. Islam is a cancer on the planet. It must be destroyed or reformed. soon. Zero tolerance. Um. <laughs> I can imagine sprouting off and saying stuff like that when you, if you were watching the, uh, if you are watching events of London unfold on television, mm. um, you would hope that on sober reflection you would say, you would drop out the it must be destroyed, and say it must be reformed.
0: Well, I'm, I'm happy with destroyed. Yeah, we're talking Islam here. We're not talking yeah. Muslims. So <laughs> it's an ideology. It'd be great if the ideology of Islam. And Catholicism and Judaism and Christianity in general and Mormon, the whole lot. It'd be great if they were all destroyed. The ideologies. I mean, as an he's quite words have meanings. He's referred to Islam. He hasn't said Muslims. If he said Muslims, he'd be in trouble. But he referred Mm. to an ideology. So I think it's perfectly legitimate. Enough. Islam is a cancer on the planet. It must be destroyed or reformed. Soon, zero tolerance. Well, if there's a bad ideology around, that's a fair enough comment, I reckon. See, I'm back yeah. to my I've got I'm back to my iron fist ways, and you're back to your velvet glove ways. Scott. No, I know that way. I you know?
1: know. I just think it would have been better if he'd said it must be destroyed. If that had not been put in there, I think it would have been better if he'd said if it must be reformed mm. soon. Well,
0: you know, they no, would have been better than saying it must be destroyed. Must be destroyed or reformed. I reckon good on him. I think it, it'd be great if Islam was destroyed. It'd be fantastic. <laughs> anyway, he's got into what trouble. What are you going to do with the great big
1: black box over there in Mecca if you destroy it? Well, you, know, so.
0: <laughs> you know, just a, a tourist attraction. Still, oh, look at this. People used to believe in <laughs> nutters. Um, anyway, he's come under fire and. Uh, Lauren Rosewarn is sympathetic to the people who are putting him under fire. Um,
1: yeah, and this is where I parted company with her.
0: Mm, she says, uh, she poses the question. Um, um, well, she says, the press surrounding Brian's post is niggling at me. It's a clash of my passion for academic freedom and freedom of speech more broadly and my ever-growing concern that such liberties are becoming a justification for hate. Potentially even an encouragement for it. Should, she ask, a scholar's <clears throat> personal condemnation of Islam be protected under academic freedom? She says, generally, I think censoring should be the absolute last resort. But condemning even Islam... I agree with her. Mm,
1: it should be the absolute last resort. But,
0: mm, sorry, go on. She says here, but condemning Islam as a whole... That sharply contrasted with denouncing acts of political extremism, gets very close to what I would call hate speech.
1: Yeah, see, that was that didn't sit well with me at all. Mm. That line, mm. I, I I fail to see how. Even if we say it must be destroyed, if you if you leave that in there, mm. I fail to see how that's hate speech. Mm. It's not hate speech. It is simply one man's expression of frustration I suppose is one word but he is taking to the airwaves and he's saying that this ideology must go mm.
0: Mm.
1: now and that's not a bad situation for anyone to be calling for the end of an ideology you know we called for the end of communism we called for the end of this it, and that and everything, it's everything great that we've example, called for Scott,
0: the, if you took yeah. out the words uh, Islam and put communism
1: mm.
0: People would suddenly view it differently It's the same thing, their ideas
1: Yeah, and that was where I parted company with her When she said it related to hate speech I didn't see anything hateful in anything that he'd said Mm. You know, it was a little blunt
0: But it wasn't hate speech Yes, so she's saying, well, you know it's It's looking very close to what she would call hate speech and she's unconvinced yeah, that this is something universities should be in the business of defending. And she's well, t- extrapolating this to saying that continuing his employment is, is defending his statements, is, is, yeah, is, is, see, is how the article extrapolates out
1: yeah and that that was ridiculous where she was basically calling for the guy to get the sack over something he believes in
0: well or at least
1: universities are supposed to be places where you can have you know national socialism one one extreme and then the communism on the other and everything in between you should be able to discuss them so i didn't think that his i would have thought that his discussion was relevant at a university Instead, he said, uh, instead, um, the author made comments about, you know, we should be providing a safe space for people and that sort of stuff at a university, Mm. which I find ridiculous. It's
0: She's basically saying that if you work in a university, you can't express opinions like this is what she's saying mm. and yeah she didn't exactly call for his sacking she was kind of hedging it a little bit but she's certainly saying his position should be questioned in some way is what she's saying mm. but here's an interesting things that she also said was had he written enough religion is a cancer on the planet well i'd have questioned his timing as a feminist atheist I'll always make a little space to debate the negative impact of faith on women. So she would have been okay with that if he'd yeah, said see, religion is a cancer.
1: Yeah, but see, that's ridiculous because, I mean, religion and Islam are exactly the same thing. They are religion. <laughs> you know, we, it is just a, a religion.
0: Exactly. He said <laughs> so this particular religion.
1: Religion should be destroyed. Yes. And he, he, you're very right. He didn't say Muslims should be destroyed. Yes. but He said the, their ideology should be. Yeah.
0: Uh, Had he written... This is also the same author. She says, had he written enough, toxic masculinity is a cancer on the planet. If he'd written that, I might have even started following him again on Twitter, is what she said. Like, it would have been okay if he'd have said toxic masculinity is a cancer on the planet. It's just a classic example of two things. Just people who are... are not sophisticated enough in their thinking to recognise that they're just being overly empathetic towards a victim that they can spot and a group who they see and say, well, we just can't have that no matter what. Mm. But really what it's also saying is that uh, the left, you know, people on the left who claim to be tolerant are just, they're not that tolerant. It's, they're only tolerant when they don't care. So exactly. If you if you don't, you know, diversity is great for them, except if it's diversity of opinion. And exactly. <laughs> this, this this woman would, you know, be at parties and that, saying what a tolerant person she is, but she's actually quite intolerant. Yes. Um, and well-meaning, but just completely wrong. Yeah. Uh, it, it was completely wrong, wasn't
1: it? I mean, it's. I just go back to that line where she said it borders on hate speech. There was nothing hateful in what he said.
0: Mm. So, you know, well, I hope that Brian McNair has got tenure because with friends like Lauren around, um, putting pressure on people like that, you're in danger of losing a job. So exactly, if, if yeah. you, as an academic in Australia, come out and say something against the ideology of Islam... You're in danger of your leftist colleagues calling for your job position to be put under the microscope. It's appalling. It just is appalling, and to be accused of hate speech as well. So, so mm. A, you're accused of hate speech. B, you know, calling to question your job. It, it is something out of a novel. It, you just, it, it's astounding to think that it's happening. Hmm. Scott. Um, Trump. We'll just briefly mention him. Did you hear about his tweet? Apparently, in the middle of the night, he's lying in bed. Is this
1: the one where he is? This the one against Qatar or no? No, okay. No. I haven't is, heard any other Trump's tweets is, lately. Go on.
0: This is the one like somewhere early in early hours of the morning. Um, he's, he's tweeted, despite the constant negative press, Koffifi. Have you heard about this? He just came out this word: C O V F E F E. And his tweet was, okay. despite the constant negative press, Kofifi. Like, it, it's a nonsense word. There's no such word. But yeah. it, he obviously just then collapsed into bed. And, <laughs> 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 and that sat on the president's Twitter account for six hours or something with people going, What the hell's a Kofifi? What, what, what exactly? What's, what's yeah. What's <laughs> going on? <laughs> Eventually, I think it was deleted. Um, and uh, I think he even joked, you know, people wondering what kafifi is. Interesting point I heard on this podcast, Scott. Perhaps the president wasn't entitled to delete the tweet because it's part of the public record and there's rules restricting the president from deleting items that the president does on the public record. So um, oh, yeah, possibly broke the law in deleting his tweet, but we won't hold mm. that one against him too much. Mm. Scott, back to some domestic matters Um, Mm -hmm. Coalition defends Andrew Robb after a revelation that he started a new job one day before finishing as an MP a former trade minister and the day before he resigned he started a job paying $880,000 a year plus expenses with a company called Landbridge, which uh, has various interests and dealings with the government. This is disgusting, Scott. These po- You can't have politicians leaving office one day and starting work with companies who have deals with the government or are trying to get deals with the government the next day you've got to have some appearance um that there's no conflict of interest so there's no allegation that he's done anything wrong he hasn't broken the law but the appearance is so bad we we've got to change the law to make this illegal we Very simple. I I agree with you
1: wholeheartedly. I mean, I I find it ridiculous that you've got cabinet ministers walking out of the job one day. I mean, well, Peter Reith's a a prime example Mm. of that. He he quit the um, coalition government back in 2001. Mm. Um, You know, the, the election, everyone thought Howard had lost and then he won it. And he turned up as a, he left as defence minister and then turned up the next week after the election as a, a lobbyist for defence industry. Yeah. It, it's his bloody criminal, actually. It really is shocking. It should be criminal.
0: Unfortunately, it's It should be criminal, not. yeah. Hmm. You've got to have the appearance that there are not conflicts of interest because, okay, you know, he hasn't done anything wrong yet, but, gee, it makes you wonder... What deals were done in, in his time in office? Were, were there deals done in his time in office um, with the inducement that when your time in office is finished, we'll give you a cushy job? That's the problem. Exactly. 880000
1: sort of, bucks a year. You know, that's,
0: that's ridiculous. That's the problem when you have these sorts of things going on is people have asked the question, oh, I wonder if he did favours for them while they were in office, while he was in office because he was going to be offered a cushy job afterwards. So that's why Mm. you can't, even if there's no evidence of skullduggery and of decisions being made that were the wrong decisions, you just, for appearances, cannot do that. So the the quicker that's fixed Scott, the better. It's unbelievable that we haven't already.
1: Well, it is crazy that we haven't fixed it already and it is something that we really should fix and we've got to fix it bloody quickly. Mm. You know, even if you start off and say, well, you can't leave and go and work in an area that, you know, you had responsibility for for a period of five years. Mm. And then after that, then you can end up with situations that you've got rumours and that sort of stuff about, you know, companies cooperating and that type of thing. And then after that, you just have a blanket ban on them going into into private practice afterwards you know they Hmm. it is you know for someone like malcolm turnbull who has got a quite a extensive business background and that type of thing Hmm. it is going to be pretty hard to keep him locked up once his time's over um he he will be on boards and that sort of stuff straight away but I, i do find it ridiculous that you know you, you look at the i'm going off track here a little mm. bit but if you look at the, if you look at the uh, the board representation that sort of stuff amongst the parliamentarians most of them aren't on boards mm. but the day after they retire they all end up on boards mm. you know and that is uh, th- that is ridiculous and they end up on boards because the companies know that they'll be able to grease the wheels
0: mm. so you know being on boards of companies that don't have anything to do with government um I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of some, but there's plenty of businesses around that don't actually have contracts with the government for starters like that that should just be number one but uh and and lobbying efforts so there's got to be ways of restricting them to to take on jobs where it's clear that they're not taking advantage or oh, even if it's, it's not a case of taking advantage of their knowledge of the system. It's it's that they might have done things during their tenure in the system in order to get these jobs later on. That's part mm. of the problem. Um, mm. um, anyway, Richard D. Natale is apparently up for changing that. And while they're at it, they're going to look at banning um, corporate and foreign donations. I don't know if you saw the Four Corners report where there was um, stuff about uh, China.
1: Yeah, I've still got to watch it, but it is. Mm. Um, it was rather disturbing, wasn't
0: it? Mm. So some of
1: the allegations I read were pretty criminal.
0: Mm. I mean, lots and lots of money donated these political parties.
1: <laughs>
0: Why are they donating the money? Exactly, because you they know, have it's, an it's, expectation it's, that something will be done for them, gonna, them as a favour. And as, exactly,
1: and that that you know it really is. It's an area that should be so simple to fix. You simply say, if you're a foreign corporation, a foreign individual, whatever you, you've got nothing to do with the, the political process, therefore you can't donate. Yep. Or, I'd go as far as to say that you...
0: Mm. Even if you're domestic. If you're exactly. a domestic corporation or you're a domestic person, individual, mm. if you're handing over twenty thirty thousand hundred thousand five hundred thousand you're expecting something in return especially special exactly. hmm.
1: yeah. i think that it, i think they've got to restrict, and i've said this before on this podcast i think we've got to restrict the amount that an individual can give to a political party and then we've got to have a blanket ban on money coming from hmm. companies unions churches whatever
0: it should be such a you small know. amount, like a thousand dollars or something. That at the end of the day, I go, oh well, okay, I can't see that affecting mm. his judgment because it's just small fish. So, um, so anyway, and, you know,
1: people people complaining that you know you're then going to have to rely on the public purse. I don't think you need to rely on the public purse. I think it would be beneficial for our democracy if we had our if our political machinations were trimmed back somewhat.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yep. And I reckon the politicians would probably like it because in America they spend so much of their time having to gather money and beg mm-hmm. for money on behalf of the party. Mm-hmm. It's soul destroying. And mm-hmm. if there actually was a rule that said you can't do it, they'd probably go, Oh, thank God for that. I don't have to do I don't go through all that nonsense anymore. So
1: exactly. the actual yeah.
0: parliamentarians should be in favour of it.
1: Oh, mm.
0: Well, speaking of which, Paul Basali, it'll be interesting to see what happens here. This is a uh <laughs> the mayor of Ipswich, was walking <laughs> he through... He resigned
1: and yesterday. Yes. yes,
0: apparently a few weeks ago, according to the Courier-Mail, he was walking through the airport in Melbourne, I believe, and a sniffer dog was attracted to him and sat down beside him. And uh, the handlers of the sniffer dog said, well, we've got to you know, check your bags, sir. Unfortunately for Paul Pasali, the sniffer dog's um, specialty was cash. Can you believe they got sniffer dogs that smell cash, Scott? <laughs> and when they open his bag, apparently there's fifty thousand dollars worth of cash in his bag. Amazing! Yeah. It'll be very interesting to see what what the what the reason for that is. Be very interesting, but um,
1: it will be very interesting, won't it? Yes.
0: So, Scott, if you're ever walking through Melbourne Airport with fifty thousand dollars cash in your bag. Uh, be prepared for the sniffer dog and have have a good reason.
1: Mm. Well, I mean it makes you wonder why the hell he had fifty thousand dollars worth of cash in a
0: bag. Does you know? make you wonder. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So we'll see. He might have had a perfectly legitimate possible legitimate reason and we'll be very, very interested to see what it is. Scott, you alerted me to an article. The title of it had me excited. Uh, mm. Christianity does not play a significant role in Australian politics, but cultural conservatism does. Did you like it?
1: It wasn't bad. I mean, huh? I quite liked it. I mean, the the, the the thing that really attracted me to it was the photo on the front where you've got, you know, uh, Shorten, well, I think mm. that's a bet's and then you've got Turnbull and his wife, and then you've got Joyce and that sort of stuff, Yes, and they're all singing hymns and that type of thing.
0: So they're all <laughs> singing from the same hymn sheet. Exactly,
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. And, ah, oh, look, you know, you read through it and that sort of stuff, and, you know, it, he is right. I mean, it, it is cultural conservatism that the Christians are playing to.
0: Yes. And, and institutional self interest as well, I guess. So he's sort of comparing mm, our politicians and our culture with America, where they really do have uh, a personal religious faith that they want to express. Whereas here, they're more inclined to maintaining some institutions, such as private mm. schools uh, and, and culturally conservative ideas, but without so much of the God-bothering, perhaps.
1: Well, this is the thing that I found really fascinating about the whole article, was that... In Australia, evangelical Christians have much less political clout. Family First, established by Pentecostal Christians, has merged with Cory Bernardi's Australian Conservatives. Their platform does not mention abortion or homosexuality, but celebrates small government. They're selling the, themselves as more as conservatives more so than Christians. Mm-hmm. It really does make a hell of a lot of sense, doesn't it? It's um, When you hear it shrunk down into that line, you understand that... That Christianity is not a very big sales point. Mm. It is simply a uh, weather vane of whether or not you're a conservative. And I would, well, I mean, I would like to see what, once the uh, census data has actually been released and that sort of stuff, I would be very interested to see how the politicians behave then.
0: Mm. Someone like because Someone like Lyle Shelton and the ACL have been very careful in their arguments against same-sex marriage Mm, to not refer to mm. the Bible at all and to the the will of God. They've talked about the rights of the child to mommy and daddy and have been Mm. scrupulous about actually not referring to those things not because they don't believe them, but just because they know that's not going to fly in this environment. Um, no, whereas, it, it really won't. Yeah, whereas if they were in the you good know, old US of A, it would have been um, top of the agenda.
1: Mm. Well, I mean, I forget where it was, but well, I can't find it right now. But there was a, a thing in there that said that um, the numbers of people that attend church on a regular basis, it's barely 9% of the population. Mm. Yep. You know, that is um, a very low statistic. Mm.
0: Scott, quiz for you. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, essential uh, report. Two-party preferred, Liberal-National versus Labor. What's the current thinking there? Uh,
1: 52 to Labor, 48 to the Coalition.
0: Very good, spot on. Um, same-sex marriage. Should be allowed to marry, should not be allowed and don't know.
1: Should be allowed to marry is 65, 70%. Uh, Shouldn't be allowed to marry is 20, 25%. And the balance, I don't know.
0: 60% should be allowed to marry. 26, say not. 14, don't know. Um, Should it be decided by Parliament or should it be decided by a national vote?
1: Mm. Uh, This one, I think, has taken a haircut since the question was first asked. I think it's probably a majority say it should be provided by Parliament. Is that right? No,
0: majority say it should be national vote, 61%. But you're right in that... um, Let me just see. No, it's always been in the 60s percent. Sorry. Okay. Um, Now, foreign aid budget. Um, Scott, as far as you know, about how much of the federal budget is spent on foreign aid, is it... Dear listener, play this game at home. Uh, Percentage of the federal budget spent on foreign aid? Less than 1%? 1%? About 2%? About 5%? More than 5%?
1: It's about 2%. Scott,
0: the correct answer is less than 1%.
1: Less than 1%? Okay, Mm. well, I've got it completely wrong then.
0: Yeah, so, but in fact... Your answer was the most common. 15% of respondents said that. So, less than 1%, 10% of the population said that. About 1% was 9% of the population. About 2% was said by 15% of the population. About 5% by 10% of the population. And more than 5% by 12% of the population. So, even spread of people... um, but the don't-knows at 44%. So for less than one, one, two, five, and more than five it was all around that 10%, 12 15% mark. Hmm. Um, the correct um, amount of aid is less than 1%. Now, Scott, are we spending... That's bloody criminal, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, are we spending too much or too little or about the right amount or don't know on foreign aid? Um, So based on your statement that that's criminal, you would be saying...
1: (laughs) I would say that we're not spending enough, however.
0: um, Spending too little is what you'd be saying.
1: The population would be saying that when we're spending too much on foreign aid, so I don't know how much of that would be. Probably 40% would say that.
0: Very good, Scott. You're recovering here. 41% (laughs) say that we spend too much on foreign aid. So here's the interesting thing, dear listener. If you've been listening carefully and not just zoning out on us here, we've got, a lot of, <laughs> we've got a lot of people. Only 10% of people could actually nominate the correct answer. Only 10%. And then they've asked people, well, do you think we spend too much or too little? Um, there's another table here that says uh, it's a cross-tabulation of the previous two questions. Um, it's it's asking uh, the second question and then looking at those who actually knew how much we actually spend as to whether they got the right, you know, how they react. So let's look at those people who correctly said it's under 1%. 24% of them think we're spending uh, too much, whereas 47% would say we're spending too little. Um, overall, though, uh, which is in contrast to the overall. So, when people know what we actually spend, then they're much more willing for us to spend more because they know it's not much. Mm. So that makes sense. Mm. So mm, exactly. Uh, mm. So yeah, the Australian population uh, very little knowledge of how much we actually spend, and um, and uh, for people who did not know. How much we spent on so, so? In answer to the first question, how much do we spend? There was forty-four percent just don't know. But then they asked those same people, "Do you reckon it's too much, or not enough, or too little?" <laughs> and fifty-five percent of them gave an answer. Like uh. you've just said, you don't know how much we spend, and now you're going to answer the second question as to whether it's too much or too little. Just an interesting it's like, crazy surely 100 percent of those people should have said well i said i don't know so i don't know again but no 55 yeah. percent of them actually gave an answer and said we spend too much so so they've said it to question one i have no idea how much we spend but in answer to question two they said it's too much because <laughs> i get well that would be reasonable if you took the view that a dollar was too much so mm. it's possible that would make sense Ah, uh, oh, um, Uluru statement. Right wing Tony and I had a bit of a discussion about uh, constitutional changes that the uh, I to that. are looking for, and, um, and
1: I don't know where I stand on that anymore, but, um, I do think that, uh, asking for a representative body is, is probably a step too far. Mm. And I think that, um, That won't fly in the... I don't think that'll fly with the public.
0: Well, here we go. They've asked the public, according to Essential Report, they said, last week the um, Uluru Statement was released calling for a number of policy measures relating to Indigenous Australians. Do you support or oppose the following measures? And they've listed four different ones there. um, Enshrining an Indigenous voice to Parliament in the Constitution, uh, negotiating a treaty creating a treaty commission, creating a truth and reconciliation commission. On all of those things, more people were in favour of it than were against, which surprised me. Is it right? Yes. There was a high level of support for people for any of the four options, which scares the bejesus out of me, Scott.
1: It does scare me too, and I know that... Um some of our more left-wing listeners will accuse me of uh, racism when I say this, but I do think that we should, as a nation, concentrate on what unites us rather than what divides us. Mm. And um, I do think that if we create a if we create a separate body within the Parliament, just for indigenous people, then that'll be concentrating on more what, what divides us than what unites us.
0: Mm. As well as being racist, in that certain people, depending on their... It is racist, yeah. ..on their um, genealogy, will be entitled to certain benefits, which isn't a good mm. idea. The other reason that it scares me, Scott, is that Noel Pearson could be, well, one of those people who <laughs> gets elected to that position. <laughs> and uh, dear listener... Language warning coming up because we are referring to we're not going to quote Noel Pearson and and this guy it could get a little blue. Yeah. <laughs> swears like nobody else, and this article is about how much he swears. So turn the volume yeah. down if there are any children in the vicinity, and if you don't like swearing, maybe fast forward about five minutes to the next item. So um, <laughs> so last year, November twenty fifth, uh, where. There was a meeting um, uh, of constitutional, you know, the usual suspects all at a meeting. And at it, uh, Noel Pearson put up his proposal and basically got feedback from the Prime Minister and others that it wasn't going to fly. And after the meeting, um, Pearson uh, verbally assaults Prime Minister Turnbull. And there are various witnesses to it and... Uh, Liberal MP Warren Inch was not at the meeting, but said he's been told by witnesses of what was said, and there are other people who are um, also seemingly able to confirm statements. But basically, this this people have the impression. Oh, okay. Let's allow the Aboriginal voice into our parliament and it'll all be reasonable and they'll do the right thing. And if Noel Pearson is one of them, then he might well stand up at Point <laughs> So at some point. And use language like this. He's alleged to have called um oh let me just get this straight here in the uh Malcolm uh, yeah, Turnbull. Yeah. He, t- he called Malcolm Turnbull a white cunt. He called Indigenous Minister Ken Wyatt a black cunt. Indigenous Labor Senator Pat Dodson a fucking black cunt. <laughs> he just—at least he was non-discriminatory in his language. Like he, he well, went for everybody. True, yeah. He just has got <laughs> the foulest language, and this is the this is this one is of the, the most indig- eminent leaders of the Aboriginal community, and exactly. he just goes and around racially abusing people. Well, this is the best they've got
1: to offer. This is the thing that I found absolutely disgusting, was that um, whether you like him or love him or loathe him, he is the Prime Minister, Hmm. and he deserves a lot more respect than being described as a white cunt.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) You know, it is a...
0: It's it's not a one-off event. Last year, Queensland Department of Education Director General Jim Watterson claimed in a letter to Pearson that he'd been abused and that he had abused and intimidated department staff calling some "ass coverer maggot and bucket of shit. Mm. Uh, last year, Pearson denied he had abused Queensland Minister of Education Kate Jones calling her a fucking white cunt.
1: Mm. Ms.
0: Jones stands by the claims. Um... He talks of racism and bigotry You uh, can't talk With a degree of piousness You yourself are prepared to stoop to using Racist terms He's an awful man And this is one of the characters Who could well be lobbed into parliament As part of the Various commissions And aboriginal groups That they're planning to have there, Scott It's just terrible That's the best of Well,
1: them. you know, I mean I, I, I honestly don't really think that language should uh, count that much for people and your judgment of people but in that particular case there mm. it really is it is it is so crude yes. that it is um, it's really it's really beyond the pale it, it really is absolutely offensive mm. and he really ought to be ashamed of himself mm. Yeah. And, like I said, you know, like him, love him, loathe him, whatever. Turnbull is the Prime Minister and he deserves a lot more respect than that.
0: Mm. Scott, we've got some great patrons out there. Let's see if we can get a few more. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, great, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a
1: potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at
0: ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. I should have mentioned, uh, with the thank you, Smiley Al, for that again. You've done a great job for us. Um, The beginning with his Morgan Freeman impersonation. The Shawshank Shawshank Redemption was on TV the other night, yeah, and and I was watching it, and all I could think of was Smiley Al's introduction for our podcast (laughs) (laughs) with his Morgan Freeman impersonation. Anyway, thank you, Sean, Alex, Jason, Grant, John, Craig, Janelle, Al, and Ken, who are supporting the podcast, and guys. Um, I've sent you an email about uh, something and I haven't heard back from Alex, John or Al. So if you guys check your email from Patreon and uh, have a look at a little message I've sent there and uh, get back to me as to whether you can make it or not. So so that's that. Um, Scott, um, Oh, well, again, with right-wing Tony last week, we, we mentioned. Um, well, we rekindled. <laughs> we, we rekindled our. Um, you cannot be curious, moment with Margaret Court. Yes, and uh, mm. look, we'll, 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 we'll just give it one more go. <laughs> you can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious. Here's an article which is uh, titled. It's still a Margaret Court. Um, Homosexuality is a plot to brainwash children, says leader of organisation that actually brainwashes children. Mm. Um, so here, you know, Um,
1: uh, the thing is, she doesn't see any irony in this, does she? No,
0: no, she doesn't. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, because Margaret Court has said they're after our young ones. That's what they're after. Uh, she told a radio station yesterday, um, probably before going off to attend a service where charismatic preachers and pop music are used to entice young people (laughs) to hand over 10% of their incomes. Uh, The woman who founded an organisation with the explicit objective to take this nation for Jesus is concerned homosexuality is a plot to get into the minds of children. Um, But the organisation, which has on its homepage an actual photo of children under the age of five being preached to by adults failed to see a shred of irony in her comments it's very true that's enough of margaret court she's had more than enough um in the news you lately. know I,
1: I was having this conversation with my better half the other night mm. and uh, he said to me i can't remember his exact words so forgive me for not quoting you properly but he said something along the lines of I mean, she's entitled to her She's entitled to her speech and she should be free to say whatever the hell she wants. But if she's going to say something so bloody stupid, she's got to expect buyback, you, know? so, you know. Exactly right.
0: Exactly right. Yeah. One more time.
1: I'm going to award a point against you, Mr McEnroe.
0: Yes, it's against you, Margaret Court. Scott, I'm going to quote a bit of uh, Christopher Hitchens here in preparation of an article which I didn't tell you, but... Um, uh, Christopher Hitchens once said, um, I always take it for granted that sexual moralising by public figures is a sign of hypocrisy or worse, and most usually a desire to perform the very act that is most being condemned. That is why whenever I hear some big mouth in Washington or the Christian heartland banging on about the evils of sodomy or whatever, I mentally enter his name in my notebook And contentedly set my watch Sooner rather than later He will be discovered down on his weary And well-worn old knees In some dreary motel or latrine With an expired visa card Having tried to pay well over the odds To be peed upon by some Apache transvestite
1: (laughs) 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 He had such a way with words, didn't he?
0: (laughs) So good (laughs) <laughs> Most people would just say, you know, these goddamn preachers who are bitching about people's sexual activities probably just want to do it themselves. Like,
1: exactly. You or yeah.
0: I would be satisfied with something like that. But mm-hmm. what a great way of saying sooner rather than later he'll be discovered down on his weary and well-worn old knees in some dreary motel <laughs> or latrine with an expired visa card having tried to pay well over the odds... To be peed upon by some Apache transvestite. What colourful turn of phrase! And the reason why I use it, Scott, is because you will recall in Indonesia, our friend Ahok has been, you know, accused of blasphemy in jail, mm. and one of the key movers against him for his unreligious activities has been um, named as a suspect. Um, In the exchange of pornographic images and photos And Mm. he's now overseas and seemingly on the run In refusing to return to Indonesia Um,
1: Mohammed Rizik Shihab
0: mm, Mm. uh, Spent years preaching conservative Islamic values Is accused of violating Indonesia's strict anti-pornography laws By exchanging graphic images and nude pictures with a woman Christopher Hitchens was, um, had this sort of character in mind, and it's interesting, Scott, isn't it? Is this, this is how politics is played, Indonesian style, is it? Like, who knows? He mm. could be completely innocent. and and oh, He
1: could be completely innocent, but it does make you wonder, doesn't
0: it? Mm. But it could just be the Indonesian hardball politics saying, right, uh, you've done your dirty work now, we're going to get you back. Who knows? Mm. Who knows where the truth lies? <sighs> Scott... Um, I didn't tell you this one, but um, Trans-Pacific Partnership—we uh, cannot kill this beast off. It just refuses to die. This,
1: yeah, I understand that. I mean, provided you got rid of the uh, investor-state dispute resolution courts and that sort of stuff, it's not a bad, not a bad uh, agreement if you get rid of that.
0: But if keep it in; it doesn't do anything anyway, except protect. You know, big companies mm. help them make more money at the at move their patents around. Apparently, um, well, Essential Report said um, it was recently announced a number of countries, including Australia, will resume no- negotiating the Trans Pacific Partnership without the United States, who have withdrawn from the agreement. You
1: yeah, I found that ridiculous because even Japan had said there was no point going into it if, if America wasn't involved.
0: You would hope so, wouldn't you? But mm. um, they then asked Australians whether they think a TPP <coughs> would be good or bad for the following. And they've listed companies, mining companies, businesses, beef farmers, consumers, the Australian economy in general, dairy farmers, Australian workers, small businesses. You know, they have said, do you think these groups will benefit from a free trade agreement, and they've said most Australians think yes to all of those. So the majority of Australians still think a TPP is a great idea. That's scary, Scott. I think it is.
1: It is It Ooh. is when you've still got investor state dispute resolution clauses in there. Mm. But without those, it's not a bad, not a bad agreement. Mm.
0: Um, Catholics... Um, are sort of motivating their forces. They're gathering them all together. They're not happy with the school funding agreement, even though they still get more money than they currently get, which is way more than they deserve. And a Catholic school in Melbourne's southeast has basically barred kids from casual clothes day unless their parents sign a letter opposing the Gonski moves that have been proposed
1: so yeah i read that and i thought to myself how churlish can you get Mm. it really was a disgusting thing that you could ban kids from having a free dress day i mean i i I would hope that the kids wear uniform just to stick it into the stick it up to the the school for having to do this
0: i hope they wear casual clothes and not sign the letter to really well, yeah, to
1: that'd be even better. Yeah, mm. that'd be even better. But
0: yeah, they drafted the school drafted a letter, you know, for parents to sign, um, to be addressed to the minister complaining about the funding agreement, and said to the kids, "Get your parents to sign this." And uh, it's only classes where every kid has brought back a signed letter that will get casual clothes day. So heaven help the kid, the one kid he doesn't bring the letter home. Oh,
1: exactly. You know, it's... um, Where
0: is it? It was something
1: Birmingham said. He... Okay, it also prompted Simon to phone the school on Friday to inform it that it would receive an additional $5.9 million of federal funding over the next decade. Mm -hmm. You know, it's... It's bloody criminal that the Catholics have taken to these sorts of lengths to argue that their special case should be defended. Mm. It's even more criminal that uh, the funding is given to them in one lump sum to be divvied up amongst the schools the way they choose rather than the way the Commonwealth chooses. Mm. And, you know, we've already seen that they don't apportion the money the way the Commonwealth thinks it should be apportioned. And it's um, bloody criminal that they've... um, Go to those links to say to kids, oh, if you want a free tree dress day, you got you got to get your parents to sign this. You know that that's bloody criminal. That is, it's it's really wrong. Mm. Anyway,
0: Scott, at some stage in the next 100 episodes, I'm going to get an expert on education funding because um, we've seen different ones in the conversation with different articles, and we're going to go through uh, education funding 101 because it's such a complicated thing to get people's heads around, but. Um, that's coming up. So, Scott, I reckon that is enough for episode 99, and um, um, we're going to have a little celebration this weekend. You and I and a few people, which will be good. We might record a little bit of that, and we'll be back for a, a, bump, a, a bumper edition, episode 100, next week.
1: <laughs> You're building up people's expectations of us. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, I don't know. I'm not sure what we're going to do, but anyway, we'll come up with something, so... Anyway, dear listener, thanks for tuning in again. Thank you very
1: much for listening. And
0: uh, and we will um, talk to you next week.
1: See you. Talk to you next week. Bye now.
0: Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to, and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show, so if you... Go to our website. You'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from a dollar fifty Australian to I think ten dollars and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event...